there's no shortage of hype around 5G these days. Um, and so, you know, there's the obvious things, but dramatically increased bandwidth. Faster, you know, one of the things that's driving mobile operators to 5G is the consumers are just doing more and more video on their smartphones over the time. And, and so they actually need that extra bandwidth. Welcome to We Talk IoT, a regular series of podcasts from the editors of Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine. This podcast is brought to you by Avnet Silica in cooperation with Microsoft. Hi, I'm Tim Cole, the editor-in-chief of Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine. Rob Tiffany is head of IoT strategy at Ericsson, the Swedish multinational networking and telecommunications company founded back in 1876, which has been a major contributor to the development of the telecommunications industry and is one of the leaders in 5G. Rob Tiffany joins us to share his experiences in the IoT connectivity landscape and the future of connectivity for IoT. He joined Ericsson in 2018, where he now drives strategy and execution at the intersection of 5G, edge computing, and the Internet of Things. Before Ericsson, Rob was founder and CEO of Enterprise IoT, where he created an edge computing system powered by digital twins. He also served as CTO and global product manager at Hitachi and at Microsoft as the global technology lead for IoT. So, Rob, you've been around the block a few times, haven't you? It does seem like that, doesn't it? <laughs> You're right. You're right. A lot of, lot of rodeos mm -hmm. with IoT and other things and mobile, for sure. Maybe some of our listeners will not be familiar with what Ericsson is doing in IoT and how it is different from what you did both at Microsoft and Hitachi. Could you fill us in? Yes, absolutely. Ericsson is, as you can imagine, you know, we're focused on the communications part of that, uh, primarily long range. Actually, a little bit of short range. A lot of people don't realize that Ericsson invented Bluetooth back in the 90s. We did the right thing and just gave it away to the community and that helped it take hold really well. So you can imagine we're focused on cellular IoT and growing that market. And obviously we work hand in hand with our mobile operator partners all over the world to help drive that business. And, you know, you can imagine over time, it's been primarily things that are outdoors and moving around like cars or trucks, fleets, things like that. But that's evolving. So one of the things we have is a global connection management system that's called IoT Accelerator. And this is totally meant to take the friction out of getting connected and getting your device always sending telemetry no matter where you are. And so we work with about 36 different mobile operators around the world that they're part of this family of IoT Accelerator. And so they work with their enterprise customers and if I kind of walked you through a, a, a narrative, for instance, if you're, a, let's just say you're in Germany and you're a manufacturer and you're part of IoT Accelerator family, you know, with a local mobile operator there, you're building your machines and you're baking in storage compute and networking in your machines and connecting that to sensors and actuators so that when it comes off the assembly line, it's ready to go. It's an IoT product, right? And so if it's part of IoT Accelerator, if a customer, let's say from the United States, buys that product, that machine, when they get back to the US, if they came to Seattle, for instance, 
the first time they would turn that machine on, the IoT accelerator in the cellular module would recognize, you know, where it would figure out where it is and it would automatically connect to a local mobile operator. And it does this without roaming. And so, you know, aside from a, a big infrastructure of technology that we have spanning the globe that makes this all work, it's also more mundane things like contracts and stuff like that with different operators. You know, it's probably not unlike, you know, if you're flying to another country and you come in for a landing and you turn on your smartphone and it immediately says, hey, welcome to the Netherlands or wherever, right? That sounds great for the consumer, but what about the network operators? I mean, they love roaming, don't they? It's part of their business model. Well, they don't always love roaming. You know, <laughs> it's, it is part of the business model. It's a convenience. Roaming is convenience that an operator gives to their home customers to let them, you know, they work out contracts with other operators in different countries to roam from country to country. But they don't necessarily want you to be camped out on their network if you're not part of the home team, if that makes sense, because you'll be using network resources and backend system resources. They probably prefer to be dedicated to their own customers in that country. Of course, the big buzz today is about the new 5G networks. Everyone's excited. But of course, that's only one option, isn't it? I mean, there's LoRaWAN and Sigfox and your Bluetooth, which, as you mentioned, Ericsson was co-responsible for creating. Each one of these networks has its strengths and weaknesses, and most experts I talk to think that will remain so. But why wouldn't customers prefer a single ubiquitous system that fits all needs? There's no shortage of hype around 5G these days. Um, and so, you know, there's the obvious things, dramatically increased bandwidth, faster, you know, one of the things that's driving mobile operators to 5G is the consumers are just doing more and more video on their smartphones over the time. And, and so they actually need that extra bandwidth. You have that lower latency, really fast latency, that lag time goes down dramatically. You have more capacity actually in the network with 5G than you have with LTE, like a hundred times more capacity. And where that matters is when you think about smart cities or other large-scale solutions where you're going to have millions of devices connected. And so they need that huge extra headroom to send telemetry. Actually, it's interesting. In a one square kilometer around a cellular tower with 5G, you could have one million concurrently connected devices or people or whatever all at the same time, which is a dramatic increase over what we've done in the past, which is going to help us build these giant massive global solutions with IoT. No doubt about it, one size doesn't always fit all. And you mentioned Sigfox and LoRaWAN and things like that. I think Sigfox got things kicked off many years ago. I remember when the CEO launched that technology at Mobile World Congress, and that was a hot thing. And it was kind of using, I don't want to call it loopholes, but just elements of, you know, I, I believe it was in the EU of where they could send certain amounts of data below one gigahertz, you know, so many times per day, just little tiny chirps of data. And so Sigfox kind of kicked that off. They kind of tried to build themselves into a mobile operator. And then you have a, another company north of Los Angeles called Simtech that built the LoRa chipset that people buy. And so there's that LoRa connectivity, which is similar to Sigfox, except it's kind of do yourself, right? And there's LoRaWAN, which the Things Network folks kind of put together to string across. I would say the equivalent to those on the cellular 
side would be we have something called NB IoT, which stands for just narrowband IoT. Mm -hmm. And so it's very similar to LoRa, uh, long range, you know, sending little small amounts of data, very low power. Because the other key thing is, is you want, especially if you have things, IoT devices deployed in the field, let's say they're out in a farm or outside somewhere and they don't have electricity and they run on battery, it's critical that they you don't have to keep sending someone out there to, all the time to change batteries. And so having five or 10 years of battery life is kind of critical. And so NBIT does that. We also have something else called LTEM, or some people hear it called CAT M1. It's a version of LTE, but we moved it forward in, into the 5G timeframe. Uh, and it's kind of has, it's roaming, it does IP networking, but it's, again, it's lower bandwidth. It's only about one meg up and one meg down, small amounts of data, long range, long battery life. Well, frankly, you have gotten me and probably lots of our listeners pretty confused here because uh, I hear all of these uh, acronyms and SIGFOX and LORAN and uh, the things network. What? is a businessman supposed to do to ensure that he finds the right kind of connectivity? Yeah, it's a tall order. <laughs> and you're right, it shouldn't have to be this complicated. Cellular is covering population centers, it's, but you know, and it may or may not be covering out in rural areas, it just depends. It's hard to always be informed to know about all these other options because there are a lot of other options. And also, like, for instance, something that most people don't think about is the idea of private 5G, you know, doing 5G indoors inside buildings, inside of a warehouse or a factory or a skyscraper or a college campus. That's a new thing that we're doing at Ericsson with operators and others and enterprises. And, it, and again, it's a, lot, a lot of it is just maybe a lack of awareness, but there's technology now. Now that in different countries, I know Germany has this, the United States has something called CBRS, which allows a private enterprise to kind of carve off some spe spectrum, you know, that's up in the air that, you know, a lot of times you always hear about these mobile operators participating in a spectrum auction with their given country, and they buy different bandwidths of spectrum. It's all invisible, of course, and they pay a lot of money for it, billions. And so, but it's always been the domain of mobile operators, you know, CSPs. But now in certain countries, enterprises are allowed to, at a reasonable cost, get some spectrum. You know, if I'm a big manufacturer in Germany and I may have a big factory, I may carve off a few kilometers area around my factory and warehouses for spectrum. And then I can use some private 5G gear. So, you know, like Ericsson and others, you know, sell this gear and it kind of looks like something that's familiar to an IT person. And you put them in the racks just like that. And you have these, um, they look like smoke detectors, but they're, they're kind of like, instead of Wi-Fi access points, you know, these, these are uh, the wire uh, cellular equivalent and it's all internal and it roams much better in buildings. It works better with heavy metal objects if you think about a factory, which is obviously a big thing where you're from there in Germany. And it's also super secure. You actually get a SIM card writer that comes with that. And so you actually write all your, create all your own SIMs for cellular IoT devices, machines, and smartphones and other things that are gonna be a part of that, let's say in that factory, and the entire network is encrypted. And the only people and things that can be a part of that network had to have been created by the Sims that you created and written. So uh, it's, a, it's another great option that's probably new to people to create a highly secure, really high speed 
and easily roamable network inside buildings. So that's pretty cool stuff. Sounds very cool. Unfortunately, our time is running short. I have one last question. Quick answer, please. What kind of insights have you gained from the pandemic over the past two years? It tells me the most important thing I've seen, at least in the world of technology, what has remained true, digital experiences delivered over connectivity to make remote things seem local. You know, we brought classrooms home to children. We brought work home and we're all connecting to each other. You know, my biggest insight and my gratitude is this giant internet that we created has held together. And these cellular mobile networks have done a great job of keeping people connected in a time where they really needed it most. Thank you, Rob Tiffany, head of IoT strategy at Ericsson, for sharing your insights with us. Thanks. We Talk IoT, the smart industry podcast, is sponsored by Microsoft. Microsoft Azure IoT Hub. Highly secure and reliable communication between your IoT application and the devices it manages. Azure IoT Hub provides a cloud-hosted solution backend to virtually connect any device. Extend your solution from the cloud to the edge with per-device authentication, built-in device management, and scaled provisioning. IoT solution based on Microsoft IoT Hub, then Avnet IoT Connect is your perfect choice. A standardized way to harness IoT so your business can quickly build smart apps and solutions based on the Azure platform. With the games that cyber attackers play constantly changing, there are no standard rules of engagement. Just a few weeks ago, hackers installed ransomware on the computers of Colonial, one of America's largest pipeline operators. A couple of days later, others attacked the dairy industry in the Austrian state of Salzburg and shut down the supply of fresh milk. So the question in the age of IoT is, how do you stay on top of the cybersecurity landscape how do you deliver quality services to your clients and grow your business? Candit Wüst is the VP of Cyber Protection Research at Acronis, a leading global provider of software for backup and disaster recovery based in Schaffhausen, Switzerland, and in Singapore. He is responsible for discovering new threat trends and developing comprehensive protection methods. He also advises the Swiss federal government on cyber risks. Candide, welcome to the podcast. Hey there, thank you. You describe yourself as a security geek. Why? Well, I guess the question is why not, but uh, joke aside, I was always fascinated by technology uh, when I grew up with my Commodore C64, right? I love those IT things. Um, and I, of course, also love to take them apart, love to break them and try to figure out how they work and where the limits are. And fortunately, that is now a very good uh, use of my talents. So you were sort of a proto-hacker. Yeah, you could definitely say. Um, I mean, I'm curious to say for all the technology things. And of course, that goes into breaking the things, going to the limit, and yeah, thinking outside the box. Can you tell us what you know about the now famous Colonial Pipeline breach? 
Yeah, that was an interesting attack uh, back in May, right, um, where Darkseid, a classical ransomware group, started to attack pipeline, the oil and natural gas pipeline in the east coast of the US. And it was very disruptive. I mean, they stole um, 100 gigabytes of data, which is common now for ransomware. So they go for a double extortion, not just encrypting your data and disrupting your business, but also stealing data so that they can even blackmail you and say, oh, you have a backup? Nice for you, but I have your data. And if you don't pay, we're going to publish it for everyone. But here, the interesting part is they apparently came in through an old VPN password of a user that didn't even exist anymore, but the password was still active. And that gave them access to the internal systems of the IT environment, which then, to my knowledge, they were not able to access the OT environment, so no access to the PLC of the pipeline directly. But as we all know, with IT, OT convergence and interconnectivity, I mean, as soon as IT is breached, very often there is a disruption for the OT environment as well. Here, I think it was the billing and payment service. So they decided to shut down the pipeline, which led to a few petrol stations running out of petrol, right? So that's a physical thing that you feel from a cyber attack. And probably due to that, they also decided to pay 4.4 million US dollars in ransom to get the decryption key, which, interesting enough, they got it. And that's not always the case, right? I mean, there is no thief among, uh, no honor among thieves, but it still took them a week to recover. So yeah, bad times. I understand you used to work for Symantec, another IT security company, where you played a leading role in analyzing the so-called Stuxnet virus, a cyber weapon thought to have been built jointly by the United States and Israel, although no one of them is admitting anything. Seems we don't just need to be worried about the guy with the black hat. The good guys are in the business too, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's no surprise, right? The world is getting more and more interconnected and depending on IT infrastructure, regardless if it's on your emails, but most of the traffic lights, energy grids and everything, they are built on digital information, right? So yes, back in June 2010, um, when we first started to see samples of uh, Stuxnet, and big shout out to my teammate, Leo Momorchu, and my manager at the time, Eric Chen, we, we started analyzing it and it was actually the first time we saw that step seven software code for the, the Siemens PLCs, which were affected. And we didn't really know what to do with it, right? Because that was really a first time for us to see it. And now it's started to get common that anyone out there trying to disrupt, trying to steal information will use any information system. And this includes IoT and ICS systems against you. Recently, you've been doing a lot of research concerning IoT botnets. Could you tell us more about them? Yeah, my curiosity started around um, a few years back with the Mirai botnet, which was a huge botnet going after routers, kind of your cable modem, ADSL modems at home, and just guessing the password. Because unfortunately, weak passwords, weak default passwords is still mo one of the most common ways that they get compromised. But we also seen that, well, there have been even a few more uh, attacks happening, like VPN filter in 2018 and so on. So those things still happen. And people always think, oh, that's just for distributed denial-of-service attacks, where they use those devices to send data garbage in the network against a website to bring it down. Yes, that is still possible. But we also saw that 
they are using those uh, IoT devices now to steal information. They might even steal your passwords or credit cards. I mean, just think about smart TVs or any of those new devices, which are kind of combination as well. So just as a proof of concept, for example, I infected my smart TV at home with ransomware. And just imagine if that happens just right in front of a final soccer match game or a world Super Bowl. I mean, people probably would pay for it to get it back, right? And I'm not advising anyone to do it. It's illegal. It's unethical. Don't do it. But that's the future where we look into it. Will 5G pose additional risks to IoT systems? Yeah, 5G is definitely interesting on the horizon. We will see more and more devices using it. And that means more of those IoT devices will probably be exposed directly to the internet. And therefore, they can be attacked. The password can be guessed. Maybe some vulnerabilities can be exploited. And once they get compromised, of course, just think about the bandwidth which is available for 5G, right? So if you now have half a million devices, each with their own 5G connectivity, that's going to be a very big distributed denial service attack. With that, you can bring down Amazon's, Azure, and other cloud providers as well. Hopefully, we will have some security in place to prevent this. But yeah, we will see. It's in the future. Well, it's as if we didn't have enough problems already. You recently completed an analysis of smart LED light bulbs and claimed that you could switch all of them off globally within 24 hours. Reminds me of the old slogan, uh, where were you when the lights went out? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it kind of was a personal bet. I was looking for another IoT project to look into it. So I went and bought many different smart LED light bulbs from different Asian online shops. And they all connected to cloud operator. That's not the bad part. But some of them, they sent the password in clear text once you set it. So they were using classical HTTP GET requests and everyone in the same network could see your password. That's already bad enough, right? But then looking further, I also saw that they actually don't even need the password because you can just add another light bulb to a secondary device because maybe you have multiple people controlling the lights in your home, right? So all you need was the MAC address of the device. And unfortunately, the MAC address is kind of predictable because it depends on the manufacturer and so on. So just a small enumeration going through all the possible MAC address would reveal all of those light bulbs. So you can just add them to your own application. And then, yes, literally by one button, you can switch it off, which, of course, I didn't do. I only did it with my own light bulbs. But it is scary how easy it was. Do you have trouble falling asleep sometime at night? Luckily, no. Um, I usually sleep well. But if it is something that keeps me awake, it's more about ideas that I have to look into it do some research, and of course, also propose how we can protect them. Because in the end, we want to stay protected, right? We need to be cyber fit. We need to improve as kind of an industry overall. And in the end, I don't blame any user at home buying an IoT light bulb. They, they just want to use it, right? So it's up to us to make it more secure. Of course, we focus more on the professional side of IoT, but I think the question is interesting, just how badly are consumer IoT devices secured against cyber attacks? I think there is an old proverb saying that the S in IoT stands for security, which basically means, yes, there is no security in IoT. 
And unfortunately, we see it all through the different devices, even enterprise-grade IoT. So usually there's weak default passwords, if passwords at all. There's no clear process for updating. Like if there was a vulnerability, how can you patch it? How can you upgrade it? Very often there's no encryption used. And of course, you also have to deal with physical tampering. So it's not so easy, but there should be a lot more being done with those devices. And usually security is just not high on the selling point. So they go for the nice features without considering security. If you had three shots, what were the three most important pieces of advice you would give to IoT operators and companies to secure their systems? I think the first one would be monitoring or visibility. I know many people think, oh, I have my network segmented, so it's separated, nothing goes in and out. But most in the cases, that's not true. And with newer devices, it's even less true. So make sure that you actually know which devices are communicating with which other devices so that at least you know what's going on. Second one is do the configuration. So go for those passwords, change those default passwords, make sure that you can update all of those devices as well. And then last one, yes, probably you need to have some additional security on top of it that if something happens, you can actually kind of restore it or you can block some devices because very often you're only using a limited command set So you don't need everything to be available, but just for laziness and convenience, we keep it wide open. And those are the things which usually break down the systems. Well, maybe a little prayer will help too, huh? Maybe, but of course, as a security geek, I believe in technology. So don't give up the fight. You can do something. You just have to start. Okay, thank you. That was Candide Wüst, VP of Cyber Protection Research at Acronis. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tim. And now, one more thing. A new brief in health monitoring. Perhaps some of you remember the story in our last podcast about the UCARE 5G t-shirt developed by Accurate. Well, IoT can reach even deeper. Pardon the pun. Underwear, it turns out, is also getting a lot smarter these days. Mayant, a leading innovator in wearables, has developed a smart pair of briefs that could potentially transform healthcare. Thanks to biometric sensors woven into the fabric of the underwear, they can measure things like sleep quality, activity, stress levels, temperatures, and heart condition thus providing some of the most reliable and effective ways to detect and prevent health issues. Mayan's skin brand fabric sends data back to a corresponding app. Mayan's platform analyzes the data, provides guidance on lifestyle changes, and allows users to share information with healthcare providers. Underwear is a good choice for a smart garment because it makes consistent close contact with the body must-have for continuous skin sensors. Mayan's underwear innovations fit into the larger trend of e-textiles and smart clothing, powered by artificial intelligence and tiny semiconductor technology. 
scientists are replacing clunky ECGs and health monitoring devices like watches and chest straps with comfortable smart garments. Health providers and developers believe advances like these will increase compliance and lead to better healthcare outcomes. Actually, smart garments will probably be able to do much more for us. Sensors nowadays can be embedded directly into textiles, kind of like weaving additional yarn into an existing piece of fabric, or by applying sensors to the top of the fabric. Either way, use cases for e-textiles go far beyond just health monitoring. Smart garments are being developed to do things like diagnose comfort levels by amputees, by monitoring the interaction between them and their artificial limb access patterns in athletes' performance, and deliver small electric shocks to underperforming muscles. Wake up sleepy drivers on the road before accidents occur with built-in fatigue monitoring. Connect to smart home systems to do things like change the thermostat when your body is cold or hot. And improve the safety of firefighters and other first responders during emergencies by monitoring heart rate and body temperature. The number of potential applications and markets for e-textiles is vast, including military and space, automotive, haptic suits for virtual reality, sports and business, and assistive clothing. The latest report by ID Techie, a research firm, predicts that smart textiles will be worth over $1.4 billion by 2030. That was We Talk IoT, the smart industry podcast. You can read all the latest from Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine, by visiting our website at www.smart-industry.net, where you'll find hundreds of feature articles about everything from smart manufacturing and cognitive computing to autonomous driving and how IoT and AI are making business smarter. There, you can sign up to receive our newsletter, Smart Industry Updates. I'm Tim Cole. See you back next month when, once again, we talk IoT. IoT.